going to be in Ephesians 4 this morning. Uh, if you've got one of these Bibles and you're not familiar with how to find Ephesians, page 664 um, in the Bibles that we, as Fred said, the small print Bibles. Sorry. I'm sorry. Doing my best, you know. If it weren't for Zach, we wouldn't have Bibles at all. He's like, hey, dude, why don't we have Bibles in here? It's a church, right? So thanks to Zach, we have them. Thanks to me, we have the wrong ones, so. No, that's, uh, so you can use that. Uh, if you don't have a Bible at home, we invite you to just take that home because we want you to have a copy of Scripture, God's Word, with you. Uh, and we would invite you just to simply take that home so you can have your own copy if you need it. Um, last week, we started a conversation that we have called Church. Let's start with why. Um, because when it comes to, I was thinking about this yesterday, um, we, we live in a town where it used to be, where do you go to church? I mean, it, it wasn't a question if you went to church. It's like, hey, where do you go to church? You know, you meet somebody anywhere. Joe, where do you go to church? Now, I think we could legitimately ask the question, why do you go to church? And I think there's a lot of people that would start with that. It's not where do you go to church. It's like, hmm, why would I? Right? So I think that's, uh, I think the only people that don't realize our our town has shifted. Where do you go to a, you probably don't, and the question would be, why do you go? I think the only people that don't recognize that we live in a different type of town now are those that have continually went, and they're primarily surrounded by church people, right? Because when you're primarily surrounded by church people, you think, well, everybody goes to church, don't they? Everybody I know goes to church. But then you step out that circle, and then you realize most people in our town just simply don't go to church. And I think most people in our town wouldn't say, where do you go, but why do you go? And I think it's a pretty fair and good question for us to ask as well. So last week we asked why, and we're going to have two more questions over the next couple weeks. Uh, This morning we're going to ask how, and then next week we'll discuss the what. So we start with why, that's our purpose. And we just find last week that our purpose in the church is revealing sons and daughters of God until he unveils glory that is to come. So the church exists revealing those who are sons and daughters of God. Now, I had a conversation with a guy. He's like, it's at least that. And I'm like, no, it is that. Because our mind goes to the what. It's like, what should we be doing? What should we be doing? The church is here to do this, to do this, to do this, to do this. Yeah, but all of that supports our why, right? And, and in the most basic and simple form, the church exists here revealing sons and daughters of God. How long do we need to do this? Until Jesus comes back and reveals his glory, right? It's been going for 2,000 years. We'll do it for another 2,000 years if he decides to wait, right? But in the meantime, the church, in, in all that the church does... This is why it's doing that. It's revealing those who are sons and daughters of God. Revealing those. How do we know who sons and daughters of God are? We talked about that last week. Those who bear his image. Those who bear his image. Remember, if, you're, if you look like the mailman, you probably came from the mailman, right? So, Stuck in my brain, I don't know. 
Ephesians 4, right? Ephesians 4. Look with me at Ephesians 4 to start this morning's conversation. I told y'all to turn to it and I hadn't even done it yet. So Ephesians 4, we're going to read verses 2 and 3 first. With all humility and gentleness and patience, bearing with one another in love, making every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. Making every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. Okay, Paul, the Apostle Paul writing this, the Apostle Paul was um, the first... Uh, of the church planters. He was the one, he went from city to city, starting churches, raising up disciples, leaving them in place so that they can continue to multiply while he went to another city to raise up more disciples that would become churches and then he would go to the next city and do the same thing. So in the Roman Empire, Paul, uh, by the time Paul's life was over, he had gone to most of the Roman Empire. Either he or those that he had reached with the gospel had covered a large portion of the Roman Empire by that point. And the Roman Empire at that point, if I remember correctly, was two-thirds of the known world at that point. So he had a huge geographical impact in his life uh, as a church planter, disciple maker. Those are terms that we would potentially use today. And in Ephesus, this is one of the cities that he went, that's who he's writing to in Ephesians. It's the letter to the church in Ephesus, one of the major cities in the Roman Empire at that point. And Paul, writing back, anybody know where he was while he was writing this letter? He was in prison. He's in prison. One of the New Testament letters that he had written while he was in chains for communicating the gospel of Christ. They threw him in prison. Okay? So he's writing this letter to the church in Ephesus while he sits in a jail cell. Okay? So here he is, and he says, very clearly, make every effort to keep the unity. Make every effort to keep unity. Make every effort to keep unity. There's two thoughts that came to my mind uh, when I read that this week. Number one, unity must be valuable. If he wanted them to make every effort to keep it, then it must be valuable. Second thing came to mind, unity must be vulnerable. If he had to make a point for you guys to nurture the unity, then it must be vulnerable as well. Otherwise, it would just naturally happen. So it must be valuable, first of all, for him to say it and to stress it. Number two, it must be vulnerable if he had to say it. Right? It's like if he didn't have to say it, he wouldn't have wasted his pen to write it. Right? But it must have been vulnerable and at risk as well. So let me ask you a question to get your mind rolling this morning. When does unity within a group of people become vulnerable? Just a general group, don't, don't, you don't have to keep within the context of a church right now. When does unity within a group of people become vulnerable? I would say all <laughs> Okay. Actually, kind of hard to keep the unity. I would think. Yeah. So number one, because we're all different, that's why it's vulnerable. Everybody's got their own thoughts, their own process. Why else is it vulnerable within a group of people? Because we want. Yeah. Uh, selfish desires. So I want what I want. 
And if Mark wants something different than I want, now the unity's vulnerable. Right? So if you're at work and you've got two people, one person wants this, one person wants this, now you've got potential division in your job. Right? Anything else come to mind? Which at that point is not as vulnerable because it's not centered on self. Which is, is that an accurate assessment of what you just said? I would even take what Sam just said, which is 100% right, and say even sometimes when we're willing to self-sacrifice, it's still not unity, it's just apathy. Right? This is like, I just don't care. <laughs> Steamroll me if you want. I just don't care enough to divide it. But it doesn't even mean we're, uni- we're not even unified. I'm just present. You know, so at that point, it's vulnerable again. Uh, but yeah, you're 100% right. So I had, uh, we got, we're all different uh, selfish desires. I had different, and everything can probably, whew, I was thinking different. Uh, direction, we're going different directions, different visions for what it is we're doing or why we exist. There's a whole lot of reasons that unity within a group is difficult to maintain. It's vulnerable. It's always on the verge of being eliminated no matter what the group of people is, right? Uh, maybe one, one more that I thought was, we just have different values. Different value systems, right? It's like, when you have a group of people, I value this, Sam values that, and it's like not even a selfish thing, it's like maybe just a nurture thing. I was grown up to value this. And, and when I value this and then you value that, and at some point we have to work together with different value systems, it can become difficult to maintain the unity. Not because we're selfish sometimes, but just because we naturally value different things. We've got to recognize that. Okay. Um, but what if... Here's my question for the day. What if, um, what if the thing that makes unity in the church vulnerable, what if the very thing that makes unity in the church vulnerable is the same thing that makes it valuable? What if we're dealing with the same thing? What if the exact same thing Right here, all this is true of the church, the people of God. What if this, the same thing that makes us vulnerable, is the exact thing that makes us valuable? Okay. Uh, it occurred to me this week, I'm going to let that question simmer for a second. It occurred to me this week, I was sitting on the couch, I had five minutes of downtime this week. Took advantage of it, and I turned Sports Center on. And I, I saw quarterback get hit in the head with a 
That's the only thing, Mark, that I got to talk about in sports this week is the dude got hit in the head with his own helmet. I'm like, that's a pretty crappy day. Like somebody rips your own helmet off your head and they continue to beat you with it. That's just, that's just bad. But in the middle of my five-minute sports center, it occurred to me this week that if I live to be 60 years old, I don't know why this occurred to me, but it did. If I live to be 60 years old, I'm two-thirds of the way through my life. And I was like, whoa. That hit me, like, in a unique way this week. If I live to be 60, I'm already two-thirds of the way. Because you assume, like, 40 is over the hill, right? I got half of it left. But I'm like, the life expectancy of a male in Arkansas born in my time is 71. So that could give or take... And 60 could be a realistic number, and I'm two-thirds of the way through. And that's just an astounding thing. It just hit me in that moment, watching Sports Center, quarterback getting beat over the head with his helmet. I don't know why I realized in that moment that just time is short. Right? Time is short. We don't have a lot. We don't have a lot of time. Time is short. There's a quote from a book called Tyranny of the Urgent. And... Uh, Charles Hummel writes this thing. He says, your greatest danger is letting the urgent things crowd out the important. Because time is short, we don't have a lot of time. He, He declared, one of the greatest dangers is letting urgent things crowd out the important things. I gotta do it, I gotta do it, I gotta do it, I gotta do it. It's like, I gotta go to work, I gotta get this project done, I gotta get this done, I gotta go get this task done. And all the while you're pushing and you're pushing and you're pushing because these are urgent things that have deadlines and they have to get done, but then you look back and you have abandoned my kids. I didn't do the important things because I was always maintaining the urgent things. And why is that a reality? Because time is short. We just don't have much. So we always live in that tension. Time is the most important commodity we have and how we choose to use it is of the most importance, right? Time is the most valuable thing you have, so therefore what you choose to do with it is of prime importance. Um, So that led me to the question, how do we typically choose who we give our time to? Right? How do we typically choose who we let into our crowd? Because if time is short then we have to be very specific and intentional about who we give it to, who we let into our crowd, who we let into our presence on a regular basis, because we know time is short, so I'm not going to give it away to people I don't want to give it away to. I'm very cautious with it. So what do we typically use to choose who we let into our crowd, who we give our time to? What are the things that we evaluate to choose who? family. So we're going to, and why do we, why do we choose family? What is it about family that we say, I'm going to give my time to family? Okay. Because I got a personal investment in them. I got a personal investment in the people that I call family. Right. It's not that they're my family. It's like I'm invested in my kids. I've got, I've got blood in them. I've got sweat in them. I've got, I've got a there's something to that relationship that makes it valuable, right? Oh. So what else do we use to choose who we're going to let into our crowd, who we're going to give our time to? Think personal interests. Okay. Some of those could be uh, you know, 
business or recreation? Fred, we're talking about playing golf, right? I'm going to choose to give my time to you because we've got a common personal interest. We like to do the same thing. And if you like to do the same thing I like to do, we can give our time to each other. Why? Because I know that spending time with you is going to be enjoyable. Because when I get to be with you, I get to do what I want to do. It's just convenient, right? It's convenient. So on the flip side of that, I may choose to leave somebody out of my crowd because, Tony, I just don't hunt. Right? And if, if you just if you want to hunt and I don't hunt, then we're probably not gonna be in the same crowd. It's gonna happen. We're gonna weed each other out because we don't have the same interests. Right? Either but, Tony, we do have a, a business interest. So even though on the weekends you're gonna go hunting and I'm gonna we're just not gonna spend time together, when the week comes back, we got projects that we may work together on. And so therefore I'm back in your crowd, right? So personal interests, whether they be financial or Recreational. Anything else? Time is short. We're particular about who gets our time. Right? Here's my observation. Preference or personality-driven crowds cater to our own likeness. You agree with that statement? Preference-driven, preference-based crowds cater to my own likeness, making change or growth unlikely and undesirable. If I choose my crowd based on my personality and my preference, it is unlikely and even undesirable that I would ever change. Why? Because I'm surrounding people who are like me. My crowd is a reflection of my image. And if my crowd is a reflection of my image, it only affirms and confirms who I am and what I like and all my interests. So therefore, why would I ever change? It's the the reason that you run into those rare groups of friends that have been friends since high school and now they're 50 and they act like high school seniors. Because their presence with each other only affirms who they are because their their personality-driven self Centered, they're, 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 they're together because they have a common image. So therefore, you never change, and why would you ever want to? Right? That's why you're the same guy at 50 that you were at 15. Now, I'm just as immature as a 15-year-old, but I feel like there has been some change. But here we go. When we have Jesus-centered crowds, Jesus-centered crowds cater to his image. Okay? Here's me, and here's my crowd. It caters to my image. My crowd begins to look like me. But now we have a Jesus-centered crowd, and when the crowd gathers around his image, his likeness, his desires, his preferences, it makes change and growth inevitable. It makes change and growth inevitable and undeniable. Because the crowd that centers around my likeness looks like me. Why would I ever need to change? But the crowd that centers around Jesus and his image and his likeness, and you're drawn towards him, and we're all drawn towards him together, then in the end, all of us find change. You can't refuse it. Why? Because you're not drawing into your own image. 
you're drawing into his. And when we do that together, we become more like him and less like us. Okay? Uh, so last week we identified why the church exists. Revealing sons and daughters of God. Let's look at Ephesians 4. Look at verse 11 is where we're going to start. Now we're going to see how this happens in the church. We're going to see how sons and daughters of God are revealed in the church. Ephesians 4.11 He himself gave some to be apostles, some prophets, some evangelists, some pastors and teachers, equipping the saints for the work of ministry, to build up the body of Christ until we all reach unity in the faith and knowledge of God's Son, growing in maturity with the stature measured by Christ's fullness. Then we will no longer be children, tossed by the waves and blown around by every wind of teaching, by human cunning and cleverness and the technique of deceit. But speaking truth in love, let us grow in every way into Him who is the head, Christ. From him, the whole body, fit and knit together by every supporting ligament, promotes the growth of the body for building up itself in love by the proper working of each individual part. Jump to verse 23 with me, where he says, To be renewed in the spirit of your minds and to put on the new self, the one created according to God's likeness in righteousness and purity of truth. Okay, so I'm going to draw this because that's a lot of words. And when I draw it in a few words, it becomes tangible. He gave what to the church, right? He gave some that are apostles, some that are prophets, uh, some that are evangelists, some that are pastors, uh, some versions say shepherds. Uh, teachers, thank you. I knew the answer, but I just forgot it. Okay. So he gave some that are apostles, prophets, evangelists, pastors, or shepherds, and teachers to the church. For what purpose does it say? Yeah. Perfecting or equipping the saints. So some of us in the church have a gift that we get to offer to the church so that we can equip or perfect or make ready the saints. Equip them for what? Ministry. We are equipping the saints to do the works of ministry and he tells us that ministry has an impact on this crowd centered around Jesus. The ministry that we are equipping one another for has an impact on that group, and it is, it builds up the body. Now, the body here is just this crowd. The body is the body of Christ, the church, those who are the Christ centered crowd who are gathered together. So it builds up the body. Until all reach maturity. And how does it say we measure maturity? 
measure maturity, it says maturity with a stature measured by Christ's fullness. So maturity equals Jesus. Apostles, prophets, evangelists, pastors, teachers are equipping the saints to do ministry. That ministry builds the body till all reach maturity, and we measure maturity by Jesus. And then we jumped into verse 23, I believe it was, and he finds that we put on the image of Jesus. When we reach maturity, measured by Jesus, all of us will be found in the image of Jesus. Therefore, we have successfully accomplished our purpose. That's how it works. It's the church. It's a Christ-centered crowd striving together. Some of us are gifted in areas in order to equip all of us as we center ourselves around Jesus. And we're going to work together, strive together for the good of the city, for the name of Jesus. We're going to do that together. And even as we strive for the good of the city in the name of Jesus, it's going to grow you. Your growth and your change is going to be inevitable and undeniable as we strive together for the good of the city and for the name of Jesus. You won't be able to resist the transformation, and it will grow us all to maturity. All to maturity. The goal is not that one would be mature. The goal is that as we strive together, all of us grow up. And when we all grow up, we all look more like Jesus, and then we have successfully put on the image of Jesus and accomplished why we exist in the beginning. Okay? This is the church. Let me give you a quick explanation of apostles, prophets, evangelists, shepherds, and teachers. Apostles extend the gospel. When I t- there's, a, there's a test, uh, there's an online assessment that you can take. It's kind of like a personality thing. And you can, we did it once when we were at station a little over a year ago, just as a, interesting to see how we're wired and gifted. I fall into the apostle category according to this definition. Now, Apostle Paul was an apostle, and I'm not like he was. He was chosen and sent by God in the first generation to accomplish the starting of the church. But in a similar sense, I have this wiring that God has given me to make sure the gospel is extended to different contexts and from one generation to the next. That's my heartbeat. That's my gifting. That's how God's made me. I will never be content just in the status quo. I always have to be striving to make sure that this people group, which the church is not touching, we want to start the church that touches them. That's how God's made me. That's what he has positioned me in the church to equip you guys to do. Right? Prophets... Uh, know God's will. They're attuned to God and His truth and they bring corrections and they challenge dominant assumptions in the culture. Derek, you're more of this leaning, right? When Derek talks, Derek's like, this is what God's word says though. And everybody's like, yeah, but that kind of makes me uncomfortable, Derek, but it's what it says, right? This is what the prophet does. He equips the saints to understand how God's word may not agree with culture and what's normal. And he says, yeah, but God has done this. God is doing this. 
That's the role of the prophet in the church. Evangelists are those that go out and call others in. They're infectious communicators of the gospel. Right? Evangelists, we're glad to see you this morning, but who's not here? Who's not here? I want to go. How do we touch them? How do we connect with them? How do we call them to the gospel? That's the evangelist. The pastors or the shepherds are nurturers and protectors. They're caregivers of the community. They focus on protecting and helping the church. So in the equipping of the saints, the pastor shepherd makes sure that, Fred, you're cared for. Don't want you to be left out. I want to make sure you're, you've been touched today. I want to make sure you've felt invited. I want to make sure that somebody's nurtured your needs today. And the teachers, they, they, they understand and they can explain the gospel, the message, the scriptures to others. They have this understanding that just when they talk, it's like, oh, that's what that means. The teachers just speak clearly the scripture so that everybody can understand and grow up in it, right? So all these have strengths, but all of these have potential downfalls, Because people that are apostle-type leaders in the church, we can leave others behind, right? Like when Paul went from city to city starting churches, no doubt some people were hurt when he left. He's like, dude, he was only here for six months. Where'd he go? Thought he loved us. Thought he cared for us. It's like if somebody's not left behind to shepherd and care for the people, then they may feel neglected and hurt when the apostle leaves to go accomplish something. But the apostle's like driven. It's like, there's another people group. There's another generation. We can't stop. I can't sit here and pat you on the back and care for you. I got to go, got to go, got to go. And that could hurt people in the end if he's not careful. The prophets can become aggressive activists and somewhat disengaged with reality. Right? It's like when you're so, this is what the word of God says. It's like, dude, but you got to learn to talk to people. You got to learn to engage with people like on an earthly level. I know your mind's in heaven, and I know that's the calling, but there's got to be a connection from heaven to earth. And and sometimes as the prophet-type people, we can lose that connection and sensitivity to those around us because we are so dominated in heart and mind by what the Word of God says. And if we don't have pastors and teachers to kind of ground the body of Christ as the prophet says what's true, then the pastor-teachers allow the saints to receive that because they feel cared for even while they're challenged. Okay. Uh, the evangelists could focus so much on the outside that they neglect growth and maturity. So if every one of us was an evangelist, then we may never grow up to look like Jesus. Why? Because we're just constantly going, 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 and going, and we're never growing, growing, and growing. Right? Somebody's got to stay back and invest in the body so that the body grows and so that it engages in the work of the ministry. But if everybody's just chasing everybody, that growth never happens. And teachers. Uh, teachers can uh, maybe, teachers can become like um, seminary professors. Doctors, right? You spend so much time in books that you don't know how to communicate to people. You don't know how to just, like, you ever been to a doctor visit where you know this dude is probably the smartest person you've ever met? but he is the most socially awkward person you've ever met too. I'm like, dude, how can you be so smart and so awkward at the same time? That's what teachers in the church can become like. It's that pastor that spends all week in his office, but like his counseling skills just aren't that good because he's so driven by understanding the deep things of the book that sometimes you get disconnected from people. 
And what you say is incredibly deep and profound and true, but it can become socially awkward without the other ones to balance you out, right? So that was a very quick view. Here's what I want you to know. Jesus is the full measure of all of these flawlessly and simultaneously. Jesus flawlessly and simultaneously exudes every one of these. He is the perfect apostle, speaks as a prophet like no one else. He is the evangelist that we should model after. He is the shepherd. He is the good shepherd of John 10, fulfilling Psalm 23. And he is the teacher that when the other teachers said, man, where did he get such profound wisdom? Jesus flawlessly and simultaneously shows us every one of these. I don't. I may be really good at one, but I can be really bad at the others. But Jesus flawlessly shows us all of them. Maybe hard for you to imagine, but you remember a time before reality TV? Some of us do. Some of you are like, well, it's always been around. And Zach's like, oh, you mean, that's new? Uh, when I was younger, the, the real world was the first reality TV show. Like before that, music, MTV was like actually music. Before the real world. MTV, y'all know what that said? Music television. They actually showed music. But then the real world came on. And music became a thing of the past, and now it's just a reality TV channel, right? Um, the real world, the opening line was this. When the real world was coming on, the opening credits, this is the true story. Seven strangers picked to live in a house and have their lives taped. Taped. <laughs> to find out what happens when people stop being polite and start getting real. This is the story of seven strangers. They put them in a house and they just put them in a fishbowl. And they show what happens when people stop being polite and they start being real. And that's the real world. That's the concept. We know that getting real means getting ugly. They put seven people in a house to watch them implode. Right? To watch them tear each other apart. They knew it was going to happen. And why did they know it was going to happen? Because preference and personality-based crowds that cater to our likeness make change and growth unlikely and undesirable. Put seven people in a house and they're all self-centered. You know what's going to happen. No one's going to change for the good. It's going to beat itself up. Right? This is why we must make every effort to keep the unity. We must make every effort to keep the unity because our differences make us vulnerable. Our differences make us vulnerable, but our differences make us valuable. Okay? If the church becomes this, right? Everybody gather around the apostle. Here's, here's, we're going to get into this next week because this is going to answer the what question. We cannot accomplish what here. 
If this is all we do as a church, if, the, if, if Sunday morning is the sum total of what we are, you guys are either going to reject or become like me. If I'm the primary voice of the church, if I'm the only one you hear, if I'm the only one you interact with, one of two things is going to happen. You're going to become like me, which is not good because I'm only, I only bring one-fifth of the value of the personality of Jesus. I'm really good at some things. I'm really awful at other things. You're going to think Jesus is not very caring. <laughs> you know, you're going to think Jesus is imbalanced. You're either going to be like me or you're going to get tired of me and you're going to reject me. Because you want a church that's more like you. It's more like your personality. Maybe it's more, more bold in the gospel or more caring with the gospel. Or, and, and you're going to get tired of me, you're going to reject me, and you're going to go somewhere else that becomes more like you. Either way, that's a lose. We don't want to do that. That's a loss. Right? So when we all come together with our different giftings to equip each other for the work of the ministry, we're all going to grow up, not to be like each other, but to be like Jesus. Okay? But that can't happen on Sunday morning. We can partially happen on Sunday, but not fully. Because Sunday mornings, you typically hear from me more than you hear from others. And, and there's a huge part of the picture that I leave out. Right? Like when I work with Tyler, like there's things that God shows Tyler and Tyler says through the power of the Spirit, through the wisdom of the Spirit. I'm like, I don't think like you, Tyler. And we just don't see the world and the Scriptures like eye to eye. Not in a bad way, but here's what happens. That when I'm with Tyler, I'm equipped. <laughs> I become more like Jesus because I see the other character of Jesus through Tyler that I don't see in myself. Right? So together, what makes us different could make us vulnerable because I could be like, Tyler, dang it. Why are you always disagreeing with me? Why do you, why you always got to say something that's different than me? Why do you always got to see the other side? Why, it feels challenging to me. It's like, don't you value what I value? Don't you want to go where I want to go? Why you always got to talk about that instead of talking about this? That makes us vulnerable. But really what you're doing is you're displaying the other characteristics in the heart of Jesus that I don't fully display. And it also makes us valuable. So I need to make sure that I do every effort to keep the bond of unity because the bond of unity could, the lack of unity could destroy us, but the presence of unity could grow us all up into maturity and become more like Jesus and fulfill our purpose of revealing sons and daughters of God. None of us display each role flawlessly in, in synchrony. Yet we know that Jesus-centered crowds cater not to our likeness, Jesus-centered crowds cater to his likeness. The church is a Jesus-centered crowd. And if we do this well, change and growth are inevitable and undeniable. We could all grow up into maturity, putting on the image of Christ, shedding our old self. And it will be revealed when he unveils his glory that you or a son and a daughter of Jesus, a bearer of his image. It's why the church is necessary. I put a, on a social media post this week, one of my 
all-time favorite lines that people give me for why they don't go to church. I love God, and I worship God, but I don't need the church. Right? I can worship Him in the deer woods. I worship Him here. I worship Him there. I don't need the church to do that. You know what that is? That's you choosing a crowd based upon your personality and your preference. And at the end of the day, you're not going to look anything like Jesus. Change and growth is probably not going to happen in your life because you're only positioning people around you that affirm your current beliefs, your current character, your current thought processes, your current values. You're not going to let anybody in that challenges any of those because if you did, you'd probably have to grow. I don't need the church. You're right. You can worship yourself wherever you want. You can affirm your own character, your own thoughts, your own desires, wherever you want. You can do that. But in the end, it's going to be revealed that you never took on the image of Jesus. You only affirmed your own image. If you want to be transformed in the image of Christ, you have to be among the people of Christ. Because none of us flawlessly display his character. When we gather together, here's the beautiful thing. Here's the beautiful thing. Closing thought. When all of these operates in the body of Christ, in the church, here's what happens. We rally together apostles, prophets, teachers, pastors, evangelists, and we're all working together, striving together, doing the work of the ministry based upon Jesus' values, Jesus' desires, Jesus' direction, Jesus' vision, and we're all pointed inwards towards Him, then when we go into this city, the city can look to our church, they can look to our family, and they can see the full image of Jesus. They can see it. They can see it. Those dudes are bold. Those dudes are caring. Those dudes have profound wisdom. When we go out alone, we don't have the full measure of Jesus. When we're together, people can witness the full measure of Christ as we strive together. In isolation, that will never happen. This is the how of the church. This is how we accomplish our why And just a sneak peek for next week, this cannot happen on Sunday morning. So next week we're going to talk about what. What do we do to operate in our how and accomplish our why? And this is where the visions of churches can go so many directions. And just because they go a different pattern of accomplishing how doesn't mean they're wrong, doesn't mean we're right. But we do have a unique vision to accomplish the purpose that God's given us. And next week we'll discuss a little bit about what we do. You have to go through two weeks of discussion to get to doing something. Man, that's hard for us, isn't it? Isn't that hard? You're like, dude, talk, we're talking about church. Just tell me what to do. I want to run the media table. I want to hand things. I want to do things. Because we're defined by what we do. Yeah, that's the problem. That's the problem. So... It's a challenge for me, too. Next week, we'll actually talk about doing things. Questions, thoughts, comments, struggles, disagreements? Yep. And I, I'm enjoying the teaching um, because I believe that 
don't know. I don't know if I'm an apostle. I don't know if I'm a prophet. I don't know if I'm a teacher. Good question. I have gifts and talents yep. outside of those things. Yep. And I and I, and I think um, even for myself at some point, you struggle with that. And you, you identify your natural gifts and talents to be those things that I would say things you're supposed to do spiritually. And so I think and, and going back to what you said, having that Jesus-centered focus and allowing him um, to work in you and through you, I think sometimes not having the full understanding of the significance of what, you, uh, what you're teaching mm -hmm. So that was a th actually you brought up a thought that I had yesterday as I was reflecting on things. Number one, some of you are exactly what Mark just said. Like some of you, I can point out this is who you are. This is your gift to the church. This is how you operate. Some of you are like, Brand new to Jesus, brand new to church, don't know who I am, don't know what I have to add. Number one, come in, let those who have clarity invest in your life while you grow up into the image of Christ, and that will be revealed partially. Number two, along the way somewhere, I think, I think all of you are gifted and will be gifted as you grow up into maturity. Okay? Okay. Some of you don't have anything to offer right now other than your body and your time, right? Because you just, you, 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 gotta, you just thought about Jesus for the first time in 40 years, right? So your time is the most valuable thing you have to offer right now. Offer it in our DNA groups. Offer it in the service when we do things for our city. Just, just be present, engage in the process, and grow up into maturity. And along the way, you're going to realize and this is really what I have to offer. And you're going to grow in your gifting so that you have more to offer along the way. My second point, I think that's what people, sometimes, you don't, and I know this personally, man, I don't feel like I fit in. Hmm. But not given that time to, to, to grow in believers, you feel like, yeah. you know, that's, that's, that's a vulnerable I met, a, I met a girl at Dunkin' Donuts one time, and evangelism happens best at Dunkin' Donuts. I got so many donut stories, it's crazy. Um, but this girl, we were talking about this and talking about that, and we got talking about faith and church and this and that, and she had never been a part of a church before, and she was telling me what she desired, and she said, I want to go to a church that feels like family. I'm like, Psh, so do I. But you know what? Why does your family feel like family? You grew up with them. You fought with them. You forgave them. You ate meals with them. Like it took years for family to feel like family. It's not like you were born one day and it's like, dang, it feels good to be in this house. These people are mine. No, you're a baby and you're just growing up and then you look up one day, man, I love my family. Right? It takes time. It takes time for people to be knit together to become a family. You're not ever going to, I don't care how good we invite you in, how good we receive you. It's not going to feel like family until you have time to just kind of be nurtured in the family. That takes time.
and not feeling like you fit in. Because I hadn't thought about this. I joined a Bible study in a church I've never been to, mm-hmm. women I've never met in my life, just because the, the topic interested me and I needed it. Mm-hmm. And, you know, it's been wonderful. And the reason is, and I really hadn't thought about it like mm-hmm. that, because we all have Jesus as the center. We're all sisters yeah. in Christ. Yeah. Even though we have different churches and upbringings and ages mm-hmm. and I think the best experience of the church is when you look around and the people in the room say the only thing we have in common is Jesus. Joe, there's no reason for you and I to hang out, right? But we came to the same room, the same table because of the person of Jesus. I'm like, we're eating with Derek on a Sunday afternoon. How, like, what do you think people like looking across the table? It's like me and my wife and four kids and Derek. They're like, it's like, like your brother or what? Yeah, well, yeah, he is. He's my brother in Christ. It's like we're sitting at the table because we have Jesus in common. Right? That's the greatest expression of the church. We're not sitting at the table because we like the same music. Because I'm like, we went to, 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 to lunch with, with Shay the other day. And I'm thinking about that. I'm like, like this mus- musician from California and like this bull rider from Arkansas. I'm like, how awkward is this? It's like, but we've come to the table because of Jesus. It's like, we got nothing in common but Jesus. And like, that is the most clear, beautiful expression of the church that we'll ever find. So if you look around one day and you're like, dude, I don't have anything in common with these people. Fantastic. You have arrived at the church. That's it. That's the goal. That's why I got really nervous when I was the oldest person in the church. Ooh, we're going to become a young church. That's not good. We're gathered because we have these commonalities. That's unhealthy. That's not the church. It's not the church. We should have all backgrounds, races, ethnicities, cultures, ages, just everything should come together, look across the table, say, Leslie, you and I would never hang out if it weren't for Jesus. Right? I'd never hang out with my brothers if we didn't have the same parents. But you know what? We got the same dad. So we celebrate together. We live together. We fight together. We forgive together. We strive together because we got the same dad. What is the church? We got the same dad. We're not gathered around personalities and preference. We're gathered around Jesus. That's beautiful. If you don't feel like you fit in, you're at the right place. Right? Wrong? Any other thoughts as we shut this conversation down? I think that's what attracts people to, to Christ. Those differences. Um, might, yeah. That's the beauty of the church. You know? Yep. That's what made me come to Christ. Mm. You know, I could be myself in a sense, knowing that Christ is want to change me, but you know, people accepting me for what God has given me. You know? The more different we are, the more we have to add to each other. The more similar we are, we're just going to start to look like each other. Man, that's going to be awkward. It's going to be awkward. I don't want a church that's like me. I want a church that's like Jesus. He's going to use my gifting to raise up and mature the church, but 
it needs to use your gifting to raise up and mature the church too. Otherwise, it's going to be self-centered and it's going to look like me. I got friends all around the country, and how weird is that? Right? That's pretty cool. It's nuts. It's nuts. But it takes a little time. It does. Which is one of the main reasons I strongly say, unless you have a huge excuse not to be at dinner on Saturday night, like come to dinner on Saturday night, right? One of the things that healthy families do is they share meals together. And really healthy families share meals together and invite their neighbors. That's what we want to be. Okay? So unless you got, like, you're in the hospital, or, like, got an ox in the ditch or something, like, come share a meal with us on Saturday. Right? Well, I don't want to be the only single one. Yeah, yeah, you do. Yeah, you won't be, but you... There, there's no excuse for... I'm just too different to fit in at this. No, that's, that's the value you bring to the table. Right? That's it. All this made possible because Jesus, the Son of God, came and took upon himself the sins of the world. And, and the scriptures say when Jesus is lifted up, he draws all men to himself. That's this. He was lifted on a cross and drew all men to himself. He was put in a tomb, and three days later, he was raised from the dead for our victory over sin and death. I've been teaching my youngest daughter Bible verses. She won't even let me quit now. I did it once, and now she won't let me quit. Uh, so every night when we go to bed, she's like, let's do it. Let's do it. So I simplified them, and here's what we did. John 3.16, I simplified it. God loved the world, and she says, God loved the world. He gave his son. Whoever believes has eternal life. That's the ticket. He was lifted up and drew all men into eternal life. And she said, let's do the other one. It's Romans 6.23. The gift of God is eternal life. The gift of God is eternal life. The gift of God is eternal life. How do you receive it? All who believe may have it. And all who believe come together under the name of Jesus and we become a family. We become a family. I want to pray for you. God, we love what you're doing here. Um, and I can't wait to see how we outgrow um, my uh, personality.